So in our reading today, uh, Jesus does something that's extraordinary, but let me kind of uh, uh, guide us to the place where we can see it. I hope I hope I can help you see just how extraordinary what Jesus did was, um, because he's going to call us to do the same thing. Um, I want to show you a picture of a fish logo. Some of you have had these on your car before. I had one on uh, my car. Uh, this is my fish logo. It's in the back of my car. Um, and um, I bought it on... December 31st, 1994. And there you can see it. It's the back of the car. So um, I bought it on, and the reason I remember that is because I purchased it at the store, the, the Christian bookstore where I bought all my music. And um, I decided, you know, I, I've become a Christian. Um, you know, I'd been a Christian about a year, year and a half then. And I kind of wanted to fly my flag. I wanted to kind of show people who I was. I wanted to kind of demonstrate my tribal loyalty. So I thought I should get a fish logo for the back of my car. And so I went to the store, and along with the other stuff I got there, um, I bought this little uh, stick-on fish for the back of my car. And I was driving home, and it was about 4 p.m., and I was hit by a drunk driver. And um, it sat in, in the bag of stuff I retrieved from the car for the next couple of uh, years. And actually, I never put it on that car because that car was totaled. And the black car you see there was the replacement car for the one that was totaled in that accident. And the reason I finally put it on, on my car is not because I have a strong sense that people should have a, a flag that they fly under, but I started realizing I was suspicious. I was, I mean, su- superstitious. I was afraid uh, that God didn't want me to have that fish on my car and that he would zap me again if I put it on my car. And that's bad theology. And so finally I decided the way I would deal with that bad theology is put it in the back of my car, so I did. But... Um, when I sold that car, I never put another fish in the back of my car. So, <clears throat> I tell you that because today is the Super Bowl, and today is the the pinnacle of tribal loyalty. Um, let me show you. Let me show you what I mean. You, you've you've seen these pictures. Um, they're in the news, right? So um, we've got the Patriots on the one hand, and people doing what Patriots fans do, and we've got the Eagles on the other hand, and they're doing what they do. This is this is what happens on the Super Bowl. And the, the wonderful thing about the Super Bowl is even if you couldn't care less about the teams, you uh, get a little bit excited, you're invited to be part of it. The most irritating person at a Super Bowl party is the one who changes loyalty every score, right? It's like, oh, come on, pick one, you know? So so you, we, we don't like people who won't pick a team. And so um, if they're not your team, it's okay, you can go for the one that beat you, because you can say, well, I, we got beaten, it's true, but they were by the national champions, right? Or you can say, I hate them anyway. And, and so you can vote, vote for the other, root for the other team. So even if they're not your team, you're supposed to pick somebody. And that's a good thing, we, right? We understand tribal loyalty is a good thing, and, and it mostly is. But sometimes it's not. And if you're wondering what I mean by that, just open up your Facebook page, right? And go look at the people you blocked, Okay because they just would not shut up about their tribe. Whatever their particular tribe was, their tribe is the Democrats or their tribe is the Republicans, their tribe is this or that. They have a, a, a single issue that they're fanatical about, and finally you said, you know what, <sighs> block, okay? Because I just have heard enough of you on social media. So we understand that sometimes tribalism, that group identity thing can be a little irritating. But sometimes it can be worse than irritating. Sometimes it can actually be harmful. 
A couple of elections ago, or a couple of years ago, I don't remember which election it was, there was a candidate who kept referring to, you know, the wall-to-wall advertising they do, right? So there was a candidate, and he kept referring to his opponent as not being a real Alaskan. He wasn't a real Alaskan. And I kind of started thinking to myself, what am I? I've been in the state less time than that guy. Am I not a real Alaskan? And and if so, when will I become a real Alaskan? I mean, my parents weren't weren't um, you know I wasn't born here. Um, my parents weren't born here. My ancestors weren't born here. What defines a real Alaskan? And what does it mean to be a real Alaskan? And you know, it's it's funny because um, uh, I wonder today if that candidate were running today if he'd want to build a big beautiful wall around Alaska to keep the non-real Alaskans out. So. <laughs> I don't know. I, you know, I don't know, but, but there is, there is this area, you know, kind of there's a slippery slope, slight, sip, slippery slope, where we start with patriotism, and then we wind up at xenophobia. We wind up with a fear of the stranger. And that's a bad thing. I understand. Carpetbaggers are, 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 no one likes a carpetbagger. If somebody shows up because they heard elections are easy here, and they can somehow game the system in Alaska, sure. We don't like carpetbaggers. But it's not far from carpetbaggers to rootless cosmopolitans. That was the term used in the Soviet Union to define Jews, because Jews didn't have roots. They were rootless cosmopolitans. They lived in the cities, and it was their polite way of saying Jews. The Germans were a little less polite. They just called them Jews. But the dislike was the same. So it's a, it's a fine line between carpetbagger and rootless cosmopolitan. So tribalism can be good, but it can also be bad. And patriots, well, they don't turn into eagles, but they do sometimes turn into xenophobes. So why do we do this? Why do we do, why are we so groupish? Well, there's, there's a reason we're groupish. It's because it works. Um, I've been, I've been, um, fascinated to, to be reading. I've been reading a book. I'll tell you more about it in a minute. But um, it's, it's about moral foundations theory, and I'll tell you about that too. But, um, but if you stop and think about it, the most successful animals on this planet are social animals. Um, I read a statistic that if you think of the, the most social animals of all are the social insects. So ants, bees, termites, things like that. Uh, they constitute 2% of insect species. Just 1 in 50 insect species is a social insect but they constitute 50% of the insects on this planet by weight. They're an incredibly uh, successful adaptation toward life on this planet. And the same is true of all kinds of animals. Zebras with their stripes that confuse, you know, when the, when the lion pounces and the stripes go every which way and it confuses the lion. It's good to live in a group. And of course, humans do that as well. But there's a problem when you live in a group. When you're part of a social animal structure like we are. And the problem is biology. There's a catch, which is our genes, biologists tell us, are selfish. This is the the book by, um, there's a book coming up. So that's Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The Selfish Gene. And what he said is, you know, picture this. If you're a moose and, you know, you can you can um, maybe have a little more success at rutting season by by kind of, you know, you know, kneecapping your, your moose adversary or something, then you will, right? Because you're a moose and you don't have any ethics, so why not, right? That basically genes are kind of all a, a looking out for number one kind of proposition, that, that ultimately animals want to reproduce 
And so anything that gives them some success, they will do that. If it means growing brighter plumage or singing a louder song or having bigger antlers or whatever it is, animals will do that. They want a competitive edge when it comes to reproduction. So fine, right? That's great if it's a contest. But how then can you live in a group? How can you be part of a group? Well, that brings us to moral foundation theory. So this is, this is a book I've just found absolutely fascinating. It's by Jonathan Haidt. He's not a believer, but um, he, the book is called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. Do you know anyone who's divided by politics or religion? So I mean, pretty much all of us, right? So he talks about that. Um, but he says, he says the, the, the solution that humans have come up with to solve the problem of the free rider, the one who, who won't do their part to keep the group going, or who cuts and runs at the first opportunity instead of defending the tribe, uh, is loyalty. We invented loyalty as a way of dealing with that problem. So we have the idea of a tribe or a, or a group identity, and we don't have anything but contempt for people who oppose it. Let me give you an example. Actually, let me, let me just read, read an example. He's got, he's got a quiz. They've, they've done this quiz across hundreds of people. I mean, um, thousands of people in um, uh, dozens of places. He says, suppose you were asked, would you be willing to do this? Would you say something critical about your nation, which you believe to be true? So you're not lying. Something that is genuinely critical about your nation while calling in anonymously to a talk radio show. Would you be willing to do that? A lot of people would say, sure. I mean, I don't listen to talk radio, but sure, I'd be willing to do that. Okay. But then the, the second question is this. Would you be willing to say something critical about your nation, which you believe to be true, while calling in anonymously to a talk radio show in a foreign nation? Right? Most people who take this test, it turns out they are slightly more reluctant to do the latter because there is this group identity. There's this idea that we belong to the nation and it's one thing to kind of keep it all in-house and I can criticize from inside, but there's something just subtly wrong about about going to someplace else and criticizing the nation there. He gives another example. Suppose you have an old flag that you're going to retire, okay? And you weren't a Boy Scout, so you don't know what you're supposed to do with an old flag when you retire it. So you're trying to decide what to do, and you decide, I know what I'll do. I'll cut it up into rags and use it to clean the toilet. Most of you, again, it's the statistical thing, so maybe not everybody, but most of you kind of thought, that's wrong. Even if you do it in the privacy of your own home and nobody else knows about it, you just think, that's just something wrong about that. There's just, I can't quite put my finger on it necessarily, but it's like, that doesn't seem like the right thing to do, right? And we say on the one hand, yeah, it's just a piece of cloth, but on the other hand, we know otherwise. So he writes this, and again, he's coming from a different perspective. He went and visited some other countries and came back and said this, I also began to understand why American culture wars involved so many battles over sacrilege. Is a flag just a piece of cloth which can be burned as a form of protest? Or does each flag contain within it something non-material such that when protesters burn it, they have done something bad, even if nobody were to see them do it? When an artist submerges a crucifix in a jar of his own urine or smears elephant dung on an image of the Virgin Mary, do these works belong in an art museums? Can the artist simply tell religious Christians, hey, if you don't want to see it, don't go to the museum? Or does the mere existence of such works make the world dirtier, more profane, and more degraded? 
and he goes on. It's a fascinating book, and I, I certainly encourage you to uh, to look into it if you're interested. But you know, if you've been watching the NFL this season and you've been wondering what's up with the Star Spangled Banner, you know, we've got a picture coming up. Uh, there we go, Colin K. Right? What's up with that? Why has that generated so much controversy? A guy who kneels during the playing of the Star Spangled Banner. It's because he's violating a group norm. On the one hand, we're Americans, you're free to do what you want. On the other hand, don't do it on national TV. Don't make a scene. Don't violate our group norms. So this is the debate that people are having about kneeling during the Star Spangled Banner. Now, that brings us to our lesson, because Jesus does something that is extraordinarily difficult for us for all of these reasons. Jesus has a talk with a Samaritan woman. We've been in this uh, series of lessons um, uh, from John's account of the good news about Jesus. Uh, John has an opinionated gospel. We've seen that. He says he wants you to believe. He's going to pick from all the stories he could tell about the times he went with Jesus throughout the Holy Land, but he's going to tell you a particular set of stories because he wants you to put your trust in Jesus so you can have eternal life. So that's the perspective he's coming from, and you can catch up online if you didn't hear all of them. But um, but last week we saw Jesus had a conversation with a, a leader of the uh, Jewish ruling council called Nicodemus. So last week was Nick at night, and today we're going to read about Naomi at noon. Um, I don't know her real name. Nobody knows her real name, um, but um, sometimes she's simply called the woman at the well. So we're going to hear about Naomi at noon. And we're going to see what Jesus does is Jesus crosses boundaries without committing treason. That's such an extraordinarily hard thing for us to do. We basically wind up saying, I'll do one or the other. And Jesus does both. He crosses a boundary, but he does not commit treason. In fact, I think he redefines, he reworks our understanding of what it means to be part of a group. So let's take a look at chapter 4, where Jesus encounters the Samaritan woman. It's, it begins by telling us Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard he was baptizing, and so Jesus decides to go north. And John tells us, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. And that's, that's a puzzle right there. It says he had to go through Samaria. Why would he have to go through Samaria? Everybody else in his entire society did not have to go to Samaria. They went around Samaria. So to get the, to get a feel for this, imagine you're in Los Angeles and you have to go to Seattle. Okay. Would you go by way of Denver? No. Why would you do that? Well, you would if Fresno and Portland were part of a country called Samaria. Now, things aren't quite the same. We have a much bigger country, but we've also got cars, so it's actually a pretty good analogy. Um, they would go way out of their way, all the way to Denver, and then come back in to go to Seattle because that's how much they disliked the Samaritans. And I know that this is kind of a novel idea, but there was a time when people in the Holy Land did not like each other. <laughs> and so Jesus, for whatever reason, decides he does have to go to Samaria. Nobody else goes through Samaria. I mean, Samaritans do. But everybody else goes to Denver. They completely bypass it. But Jesus has to go through Samaria. Why? John doesn't tell us, but it's a puzzle. So he has to go through Samaria on the way and eventually comes to a Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came 
to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. Jesus speaks to this Samaritan woman. And this is shocking for anybody in that culture to imagine for a bunch of reasons. In fact, John tells us the woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. Remember, they go to Denver and back, right? They don't, they don't go through Samaria. So it's surprising there. But on top of that, Jesus is a man. And in that culture, it would have been very unusual for a man to speak to a woman who was not his wife outside of the home. Um, uh, it would have been unusual for a man to speak to his wife outside of the home, but certainly he wouldn't speak to any other woman that he wasn't related to either as a father or as a husband um, outside the home. And Jesus just strikes up this conversation, please get me some water. But on top of that, Jesus is a rabbi. And rabbis didn't talk to women. And the reason is because it's like giving a fish a bicycle. Um, that was the way... So, so, that was the way that people in that culture perceived women. There was no point in educating them because they were women. And Jesus strikes up a conversation when a rabbi would never waste his time talking to a woman. And the woman was surprised. And so she says to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? And I think at this point, honestly, I think at this point Jesus sighs And the reason is this, God came to earth and he became a human, but you can't just become a generic human. You know, in the the news, they tell you about a generic voter favors this party or that party. There are no generic voters. There are no generic humans. Jesus is not a generic human. He is a particular human. He had to pick. He had to decide when was he going to be born into what nation, what tribe, what family. So he became a Jew. He became a male Jew. And then when he grew older, he became a rabbi. Jesus became a particular man. And I think he sighs here because this is the problem when you become a human. You become a particular human. And some people can't see past that. The woman looks at him and she does not see God in the flesh. She sees a Jew. She sees a man. And she sees a rabbi. And Jesus says, if only you could see He says, if only you knew the gift uh, that God has for you and who you're speaking to, if you could see past the Jew and the man and the rabbi, if you could see who I really am, you'd be asking me for a favor. And here's the good news. I would give it to you because I am God and I long to give you good gifts. I would give you living water. Living water, that sounds fancy. That's their word for running water. She says, but sir, you don't have a bucket or a rope, a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How could you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? And Jesus says, yes, I do think I can provide better water than Jacob. I think my water is way better than Jacob's water. He says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And the woman misunderstands. She thinks she's still that he's still talking about water, water. He's talking about spiritual water. But before we make fun of her, just stop and think. Imagine you had to walk to the well every day to get your water. And somebody comes along and says, how would you like indoor plumbing? I'd say, please, sir, the woman said, give me this water. Then I'll never be thirsty and I won't have to come here to get water. And then Jesus turns a strange corner. He says, 
go and get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, you're right. You have a husband for you have had, you don't have a husband. You have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. This suggests the reason why she came to the well at noon. Why would you come to a well during the heat of the day? Why would you come by yourself instead of with other people who also have to go to the well? The reason is because you've lived some kind of a moral life, perhaps. We don't know exactly why. She's an outcast, and so commentators have traditionally looked at this passage, this part of the passage, and said it's something to do with her personal life. And the woman says, Sir, you must be a prophet. And then she does what a lot of us do. When we're in a Bible study or we're reading the scriptures or something and it gets a little too close to home, we say, let's talk about some arcane theological topic instead. Let's talk about Mount Gerizim because then it doesn't make me nervous. She says, if I wanted to talk about my personal life, I wouldn't have come here at noon. I could have had all the conversation I want when the other women came to the well this morning. So she says, let's talk about theology instead. Why is it you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? And I think that's what she's doing. I think she's just deflecting. She's saying, let's talk about something else. But maybe she's saying, somebody knocks on your door, right? Knock, knock, knock. I'm collecting for a good cause. Are you a person of faith? You go, well, let's talk about faith. What, do you, what kind of faith are we talking about here? You know, Because there's all kinds of people of faith. I might support the right cause, but I need to understand a little bit more about where you're coming from. So maybe that's where her, where she's coming from. And Jesus says, okay, you want to talk theology? Let's talk theology. And then he says this, which, which um, I confess I did not study well enough to understand. He says, believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. I get that part. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. Salvation comes through the Jews in the form of Jesus Christ. But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who worship him that way. For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And I think at this point the woman says, all right, let's not talk about theology. You know what? I don't quite understand what you mean, Jesus, about spirit and truth and the Father seeking such as these. Why don't we wait till the Messiah comes and he will straighten it all out for all of us. And Jesus says, wait's over. He says, I am the Messiah. And just then, just then, I would love to know what the woman would have said next, but we don't get that. Instead, the disciples show up. John says, okay, this is where I quit reporting hearsay and this is where I actually was there. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, as they would have been, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her, or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. I picture the people in the village saying, everybody knows what you ever did. It's no secret. And she goes, all right, just, just come and see. All right, forget why. Just come and see this man I found. Could he be the disciple? So the people came streaming for the village to see him. Meanwhile, the disciples have this interesting conversation. The disciples say, Rabbi, eat something. And Jesus says, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. And the disciples, as often is the case, they misunderstand. They say, what, did somebody come? Did the woman have food? Would he eat one Samaritan food from a woman? Did someone bring him food while we were gone? 
And Jesus says, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know, one of the critiques that pastors tell each other when we get together and complain about you is we say, you know, this couple left my church. They said they weren't getting fed here. Jesus says where you get fed. He says you get fed not because of a particular worship style or a particular pastor or a particular kind of preaching. He says you get fed by doing the work of God, doing the will of God and finishing his work. And then Jesus says this, you know the saying, four months between planting and harvest, but I say wake up and look around. Something amazing is about to happen. Over in that town, that woman ran back to, there's an entire community that is about to be transformed. Wake up and look around. That is where I get my bread and butter. That is what feeds me. It says the harvest, the fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? You know the saying, one plants and another harvests, and it's true. And he goes on. The villagers come out, and they believe in Jesus. And in fact, they say, we came, they, they specifically say to the woman, now we believe not because of what you told us, but because we've heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the Savior of the world. So, Jesus crosses this boundary. Jesus crosses so many boundaries, but the obvious one, he crosses the boundary to Samaria. He crosses it just to walk through it. And then he crosses it again and again when he encounters these Samaritans and he interacts with them. When they come streaming out, he doesn't say, oh, well, the woman was an exception, but I don't want to talk to a whole bunch of Samaritans. Jesus stays there two days. And he tells us, he tells his disciples, this is our bread and butter. This is what we eat. This is where we get our nourishment. This is doing the will of God, bringing people to an encounter with Jesus so that they can have eternal life. So, what do we do with this? Well, Jesus says the fields are ripe for the harvest. I think sometimes we get a feeling that if somebody new shows up in the church, they're like a Samaritan, they're a stranger. You know, we, we, we live in these holy huddles and we don't, we don't appreciate that God is doing work. Jesus says, Jesus says, one plants and the other harvests. God has done something in everybody's life. And we never know when God is calling us to be the harvester. So, yes, this is an evangelism sermon, but it's more than an evangelism sermon. It's telling us how we can be evangelists. It says to cross boundaries. How many non-Christians do you know? And how many have you ever talked to about Jesus? I don't mean, I don't mean tried to make a convert. I just mean, here's somebody who's doing something in my life. Here's what's going on with me. And it's due to Jesus. You know, I, I said that I don't have a Jesus fish in the back of my car. The reason I don't have a Jesus fish on my car is because I think it's a conversation stopper. You know, I think it basically lets people peg you and they say, okay, all right, I know that person. And they can either say, you're part of my tribe, or they can say, you're not part of my tribe. So for a long time, I had a car without any markers on it at all, but a friend of mine sent me this one. So, um, And the only reason I have it there is because nobody understands it. It says, Jesus is my hermeneutic. And if I go to a gathering of pastors, they, they understand it and they laugh and they, they think it's funny. But I've had conversations at gas stations where people say, what's a hermeneutic? Because it's a conversation opener. It helps me to cross boundaries. And I can say, 
Well, Jesus is how I look at the world. That's what a hermeneutic is. It's it's the lens you use to look at the world. So that's the bumper sticker. I probably wouldn't have put it on my car except a friend of mine sent it to me. But I found that it helps me to cross boundaries. It helps me to get out of my Christian bubble. It helps me to meet people who don't know Jesus. So I invite you to do the same. Jesus invites you to do the same. And he says, the workers are paid good wages. He says, he has food that you know nothing about. How would you like to be fed? Not with, not with regular food. How would you like to have drink? Not regular drink, but the kind of drink that bubbles up to eternal life. Jesus says, this is where it's located. Let me close this way. Evangelism. Who likes evangelism, right? Evangelism is telling people the good news about Jesus. And that's hard enough. But what's even harder is telling people the good news about your church. See, for a lot of us, it's harder to tell people about Jesus than it is about our church. Because our church is a tribe that people might like. But for other people, it's like, yeah, I know people who like Jesus. My son, my grandson, my daughter-in-law, my neighbor, they're interested in Jesus. But I can't stand churches. So I think that this is a call to us in the church to ask ourselves, in what way is there a distinction between introducing people to Jesus and introducing people to the church? Because if there's any difference, then it's on us to change. Even if it's flying a flag we enjoy, even if it's a way that that enables us to circle around our identity as Christians, it's on us to drop that so that people can see Jesus when they look at his bo- at the body of Christ. Let's be boundary crossers. Let's introduce people to Jesus. Let's tell them, here's what Jesus is doing in my life. And if they say, I've got objections, we say, look, just come and see. Because that's what this woman does. And her entire community was transformed by this anonymous woman. Our society needs to be transformed. You see it. You'll see it today during the NFL extravaganza during the Super Bowl. You'll see it. People will mention whether we should kneel during the national anthem. Our society is so tribal. We can be transformers. We can be like this woman and bring about transformation, not of an individual, but of an entire community. Let's be that kind of people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks we give you thanks that we live in in social structures, that we're not um, living alone by ourselves out in a forest somewhere, that we have a society we're part of and we benefit in so many ways. We thank you for this nation and all the ways we're blessed because of those who have, those who have built and um, uh, given us uh, structures and systems that have uh, benefited us in so many ways. Lord, we thank you for all the things that make this country dear to so many of us. But Lord, let us not be parochial. Let us not be xenophobes. Let us keep in mind that carpetbaggers can become rootless cosmopolitans. Let us cross boundaries like Jesus did. Let us talk to Samaritans. Let us talk to women. Let us talk to non-believers. Let us have 
theological conversations, not debates, and not simply flying our flag. Let us be transformers of the communities of our nation. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.